ora and welcome to the special edition of NZSA Live. The following content was recorded at our 2018 National Writers Forum. We're releasing it as part of NZSA Connect to help New Zealand authors and writers stay connected during the COVID-19 national lockdown. Today's podcast features audio from the discussion between Anita Heist and Paula Morris called Indigenous Writers Talk. the back in that last session and I just listened to us get slagged off but anyway it's okay no so what is it? so um, I came here in 1996 and I was doing my PhD on I was interested in how Aboriginal people back home uh, edit publish write edit publish and so forth and I wanted to look at um, how Maori writing and publishing worked here in Aotearoa and in native North America. So I came here, literally contacted nobody, arrived. I had a fellowship, an Axans fellowship. Got it, got on a Sunday night, went to, what's the main bookshop here? Unity. Was it Unity? Oh, it was another one. Was it? Was it- Whitcalls, maybe, and I bought. Witty had a, a, a set of five and an anthology, anthologies, and I bought those. And I went through all the bios of everybody that lived in Auckland, and I rang up the university, and I met I met um, Witty and Albert Went and ran a factory in, here at the university. Told them what I wanted to do, um, and I contacted um, Pat, and I drove from here down to Wellington, and I was welcomed onto her marae and and interviewed her and learned so much from her literally in that day. Um, so. She She's one of my pioneers also, but in Australia, our, our first published author was in 1929, W. Nippon. He's on our $50 note, which is quite extraordinary. He was also an inventor. Um, his manuscript was originally stolen and published by Angus and Robinson uh, under another name, and but the rights have been given back. So he's our first... He, he did it first. Uh, our first published poet was Udra Noonuckle, born Kath Walker on Stradbroke Island. Uh, Noonuckle are her people. Udra is the word for paperbark. And she changed her name as a protest to the 1988 bicentenary. And her poetry sold back then in 1964, called We Are Going, sold 10,000 copies. It was so brilliant. And it was so brilliant that some reviewers didn't believe that it had been written by an Aboriginal person, let alone a woman. Or either a woman, let alone an Aboriginal person. So um, people like playwrights like Jack Davis and Kevin Gilbert. Kevin Gilbert wrote the first Aboriginal play in Australia called The Cherry Pickers in 1968 and refused to have it produced until he could have an all Aboriginal cast. And it's since been done, you know, at the Sydney Theatre Company and so forth. And I think it's really important we all sit here in a position of privilege if we can afford to come to a writer's forum um, to know and respect and understand and, and pay homage to those who actually did it before there were writer's forums and publishers and so forth. So. Something Anita said on Friday night. Do you, do you really need my microphone? Can I just do my teacher's voice? Do you want the mic? You do, don't you? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. I feel like I'm in a nightclub again. Um, we call it karaoke. <laughs> no, but we do now. <laughs> But Anita said it's not on Friday or, thing, or sometime. I've heard you talk so much this weekend. Your voice is ringing in my ear. Um, you said it's not rocket science, 
young brown people need to read stories of brown characters. And when I was at high school, we actually saw a short film of Little Brother, no, Big Sister, Big Brother, Little Sister by Wati Ihamira, which was actually not set in Auckland, the story, but it was filmed in Auckland at the time. And I thought, oh, I didn't know you could do this. I didn't know. I had no idea. I was an idiot. But... What you can't see. So if, if you can't be what you can't see. So if you can't see Aboriginal people or Māori people on the screen or writing books, you can't possibly know you can be that. So that's why we need to be everywhere. Now, I have to say, um, because I lived away for so long, you know, I left New Zealand the month after my 20th birthday, and I lived away for most of 30 years. So a lot of my role models in writing are not New Zealand writers, but they're people in other places. So it took me a long time to come around back. So I didn't read Patricia Grace till I was in my 30s, I think. Um, I didn't, so I don't think anyone in this room needs to feel ashamed that they've not read the complete works of all Maori writers. I mean, we'd read some Hone Tufare at school, which was really great, and I'm sure many people had that experience, but often it's just a case of thinking, well, you, you know, you've got to fill in the gaps, and so where do you start and how do you keep going? But it's really crucial, and we've talked a lot about this this weekend, to know who's writing. I, I was, just as, as, a, as a side, Nick Lowe... Uh, one last night, that CLNZ big prize, the 25 grand to work on his book. And I saw someone complaining on Twitter that he was a Pākehā. Well, Nicola was Tainui. He's Tangata Whenua. It's like Māori writers know who other Māori writers are, you know? Am I not brown enough for you? Which is, I mean, you know? We need to know who's doing what and be really engaged with all that. You are in Australia. But you wrote a memoir, Am I Black Enough for You? I was just thinking about you saying you don't. Not everybody has to have read the complete works of anybody, really. But in terms of Maori writing, if you are like, if, say, if I take it back home, if you are writing Maori-rich content, then you probably need to know who's already written what. And well, not probably. You do need to know what's. And, and yeah, that's all. Yeah. Well, it's always you. You know, you want to know the currents that are in our literature, which stream you're swimming in. Oh, the next question. This is what the homework we had last night. Oh, how did um, Paula? How did you get started, and what challenges faced you in the industry um, back then? And where did you find guidance, assistance, and your motivation to keep going? Okay, so 1996, I worked in the record business in New York. Was completely miserable, though I earn more than I do now, so that was good. Um, started going to writing classes after work, which meant I actually had to leave work once a week at six o'clock, which was considered very, very antisocial to do that, because we expected to be there until we dropped dead at our desks. Um, so I started going to a class just to get my confidence up and start writing again. And that's why I'm, I'm kind of keen on classes, because they just give you deadlines, they give you rooms of insane people writing their insane stuff, and, and you start to develop the skills again and the confidence. From that, we... Four of us formed our own writers group that met once a month. Community is very important. Nadine Hodder and I were talking this about this today. Sometimes you need to get face-to-face -face and to talk about things and to, to motivate each other to keep going. Spent two years sending stories out, getting rejected. I've got fantastic rejection letters. Lovely one from the Atlantic Monthly, I'll always treasure, where the fiction editor said, you write very well, but this one's not fast, and I, that made me happy for about three months. Um, so it's, it was a slow build, I think. 
over a number of years to working on my first novel, which was Queen of Beauty. So what, was, what were the challenges, though? You were motivated, so you went to your class. What were the challenges beyond you were sending out stories? Did any of them get published? Do you remember the first story you got published? In 2000, I got two acceptances, one from a journal in New Zealand, JAM, J-A-A-M, and one from a journal in, Aus in the US, Hayden's Ferry Review. So that was from starting in 96, got my first acceptances in 2000. And the challenge for me is the challenge for many of you, I think, right, time? Time and attention, you're working, you're working, you're working. When was there time to write? That's why those writers' groups are really important to me. And then just to how to keep going, you know. I mean, it's the good business advice, isn't it? If you want to have a successful business, start, keep going. And it's the same with writing. How do you keep going even though you have to work? I certainly did, even though I had to move around a lot for work. Even though sometimes we were unbelievably broken, I was just doing ghostwriting to make money. How do I keep my own co-papa there? How do I keep it on the boil? And you have to do it through the absolute desire to write and that thing you were talking about the other day of purpose or some feeling that it is that there's, there's writing for a purpose there, not just it's not a hobby. What about you? Uh, I talked about um, publishing Sacred Cows and why I wrote Sacred Cows and not imagining I'd ever do any other, more work, any more books, I should say. But I sent that to every single publishing, well, every single mainstream publishing house in Australia back then in 1996 and got rejected by every single publishing house back then. And then I was in Canada working on the Mohawk Reserve newspaper and I got a, a letter from an Indigenous publishing house, um, Magabala Books, signed by the publisher there. Uh, he'd also sent me a rejection letter when he was publisher at Allen and Unwin. And so, so I recognised the name. We had a phone conversation and I rang, rang him back up and I said, oh, are you the same so-and-so that worked at Penguin? And he said, yes, I am. I said, well, you sent me a rejection letter for exactly the same manuscript. And he said, I never saw it because they have readers. And I said, well, that will, well, that will teach you to put your name to something that you... So I, I wonder what my writing career may have been like if it had been picked up by a major, like a multinational, as opposed to this, you know, under resourced Indigenous publishing house based in Broome. It is what it is. It's all fine. Um, but my rejection letters said things like, oh, yes, we really like to have an Aboriginal author on our list, but this isn't Aboriginal literature because they had their own prescription, a definition of Aboriginal writing. And mine is it can be about surfing at Byron Bay or about land rights and native title and so forth. So it, it was a, it's completely different now. But I, for years and years and years, it was about trying to educate publishers to understand that if it's written by an Aboriginal person, that, that defines the writing, not, not necessarily the content. So I'm of the belief there is a genre. We do have our own genre. Other people will say, no, that ghettoises the work. Um, I, I, think, I think there is a particular voice and style in our writing. And I've read many, 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 many books by... Um, Aboriginal authors. I've made, read many books by Maori writers as well. But um, I was thinking, I did. A, I self-published as well. I, I was. I wrote comics. I wrote comics for two years. I wasn't very good at it because I, I was passionate about it and I had a purpose. However, there's one message on every page, and you have to get that quite. And I'm verbose, so it didn't work very well. And the day I said to the editor, the big editor, I can't do this, and she said, Oh, I need. I'm so glad you said that. 
<laughs> because we know you've been struggling for two years. Anyway, so my father said to me one day, um, Anita, people get... My father was a carpenter. He loved his job. And he said, Anita, people get up every day around the world and they hate what they do. So if you can do something that makes you happy, if it's sweeping the streets, that's what you do. So I quit my job that I wasn't very good at, to write a book. And in which then he was horrified because I said, you tell me to follow my dream. He said, yeah, I didn't say don't have a salary. But, um, but we make choices, and, um, but it is about perseverance. I was writing columns and things for not, not paid columns for youth journals because the, the comics I wrote were youth-related comics. Um, and then I built up this publications list so that then I had this little mini CV publications list that then I got my first paid... I never banked the cheque. My first article on Aboriginal housing in Habitat was an environmental magazine and I, and I, I never, ever banked that cheque. So I was so excited about the, the, the first... Um, the first published thing and I self-published a book of poetry to prove that as an author you can provide a work to a reader at a reasonable cost right and then Dimmix which is our do you have Dimmix here Dimmix is we said Dimmix is our big one of our big chains um the buyer there liked me for some reason and she took 250 copies of this tiny volume of poor poetry. It's crap, really. It's crap. Called Token Curry. And I'll never forget this because she then became my publisher at Random House and then at Simon & Schuster. But she um, was a buyer for Dimmicks and we're on the phone and I wanted to sell it for $10.00. And I would, you know, still make a profit and pay off what it cost me and so forth. And the reader could buy a book for $10. And she said, Anita, nobody will take you seriously. You have to sell it for $12.95 or $15. And I'm crying, going, no, no, I'm trying to make a point here. Um, but she took 250 copies at a time, which was quite extraordinary, in 96, and put it on the cover of the monthly Dimmitz magazine. And I sold about 1,000 copies altogether. So I, I would not, I probably wouldn't self-publish again, though. But, um, yeah, I just wanted to share um, just before we move on, just thinking as well, because Anita's saying that there was an expectation around what an Aboriginal writer would do. I mean, I think that's changed here a lot, but, I mean, for a while it seemed like if you didn't have a Mariah in your story and an old nanny living in it near the sea, that you weren't really writing a real Maori thing. But I think that, that, that those times have changed. I do know when my uh, second novel, Hibiscus Coast, came out, I had a bit of a squabble with my then-publicist at Penguin, because those of you who know me know I enjoy arguing with people. Um, and, and I said, why, why is Mana Magazine not interested in this? She said, well, this isn't as Maori as your first book. And I'm like, but I'm the same person. And actually, the main character was Māori, and another main character was Samoan, and the other main character was Māori. But it's because they were urban people. With One of them went to art school. One of them sold real estate. They, it wasn't a Marae setting. So there are, I think there are always these expectations that we have to be conscious of pushing back against. Those of you in the international session just a minute ago talking about what international publishers are interested in, they are interested in, in, in an Australian Indigenous context, the stories of hardship. And, you know, so the books that get translated, the French are the biggest translator of uh, Aboriginal works. They are the stories of literally 
where the British have screwed over Aboriginal people. And so, like, it's not rocket science either. They're, like, they're happy to publish things and make the British look bad. But I, that, they published a book of mine called uh, Who Am I, the Diary of Mary Talents, which is about the Stolen Generations. And what was interesting was they had a big event at the book fair in Tahiti. There's hundreds of people, French people here, and, you know, maybe a dozen local Tahitians here. And, the, and I have a translator, and, the, and the, everyone's gasping at the appalling treatment of Aboriginal people under the Act of Protection. And then I could see them all going, I go, you know you, you've done terrible things in the Pacific also to... And, and so all the, then the, the locals are going, yeah. And the, so it's, it's their, their comfortable reading about... Um, like, they won't publish my chiclet because my French publishers can't believe... Why would you write something like that? Because it's not literary. It's not at the top of the literary hierarchy. So chiclet's just above Westerns, which nobody writes anymore, apparently. <laughs> What's your next thing? The next question is, um, how has your work in any way been pioneering for other writers? This is us a conversation between each other last night. Maybe talk about writing in various genres, expectations, reactions, and ease of getting published in those spaces or not. That's a big question, isn't it? Um, so writing in different genres, because I write YA as well as adult books. I started off as a ghostwriter. Um, I, I've ghostwritten a lot of books. I've written, I've ghostwritten many more books than I've written with my own name. When people say I'm prolific, I'm like, you have no idea. You have no idea how many series I've written with other people's names on them. I know. Though I had to make a living, right? So writers, no, 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 I sign a contract. Yeah, you sign a contract. You don't say. I never say. People ask me. It's quite easy to find. You have to look on the back of the book, see if I've been thanked. But, um, and so, sometimes even then, not. But that's when, when you're a writer, and especially if you're a writer from a small place, you've got to make your money. How are you going to make your money? I, I quite enjoy doing it that way. Sometimes you write things that you have to grit your teeth about. And I wrote so many sex and shopping novels for 12-year-olds, essentially, where they're kissing and shopping novels. I thought, I, I just want to write a book like the ones I grew up reading where girls went on adventures. They didn't have superpowers. They didn't have money. There was nothing about clothes in them, right? They solved crimes. The Trixie Belden books, the Donna Parker, you know. So, um, and my niece at that time was 14 going on 15, so I made the main character her age, her name. I wrote her cat Marilyn into the book. You know, Marilyn is the only character based on an actual creature or person and um and then I was living in New Orleans and so a lot of my interest in my adult fiction as well is around race and place and identity and passing for one thing and historical legacies and what we carry with us into the future without even realizing so I was able to write that book set in New Orleans about a historic crime where a black girl had been killed and a curse on a family which is why it's done so well because it's taught in a lot of schools so it's Scholastic published it in 2009, I think. So um, it's, yeah, it, but it, it's interesting because if you know me as an adult writer, I think it makes sense. You know, you'll see a lot of the things that are in my adult books appear in my young adult fiction as well. And there was one small thing, I've told this story before, I apologize if, if you've heard it, but I was so used to my ghostwriting to not writing in the brand names for things because I find that really boring and I hate that kids are being encouraged to think about brand names. So I just write those square parentheses in. You know, so she was wearing square parens, you know, move on. 
And when I got the proofs back for Ruins, the sub-editor had written, author must decide, because <laughs> I'd just done it naturally. Going, I don't really care. She, okay, she's wearing a grey sweater. Really, I, there's a lot of grey sweaters in my books, I have to say, my young adult books, because I really I, I don't think it's good for girls at 12 to be obsessed over what brand they're wearing. They need to be going into cemeteries at night and getting into trouble with ghosts. That's what I want them to be doing. I wouldn't have done it. Of course, I was a scaredy cat. So, But... <laughs> To me, that's why I think whatever you're writing, whether it's a chiclet novel or a supernatural mystery in my case, still the things that you care about, the things that you're passionate about, end up bubbling through the surface. So in terms of pioneering, uh, let's stick with that, the American YA genre. Have other... You started... When was your first book published? In, over the, 2009 was the first one? Yeah. So have, do you know of, were there any others or have any other New Zealand writers followed you in that, in that genre in the US? I'm a quite obscure person, Anita. At, on Monday night, the Matatui launch at the Auckland um, Public Library, we we're launching this new foundation, Matatui, which is going to help support the New Zealand literary landscape with small grants through the Auckland Writers Festival. And I was talking with a very nice patron, and we we're talking. I was talking about my book deadline, and she said, "Is it your first book?" <laughs> I was like, "No," <laughs> but you always reminded of your profound obscurity. Just <laughs> last year, when I was getting savaged on social media because that's why social media was invented, um, of people saying that I was Pakeha, and I'm like, I'm really glad that I have this really top-notch reputation in New Zealand, so that so many people have no idea who I am or that I'm even a writer. So, um, no, I don't think anyone's followed in my footsteps and I don't think I make any impression on people unless I shout at them about point of view in a workshop. It's a serious, it's a serious question because, um, you know, we, we open by acknowledging people who pioneered and paved the way for us. And so, I mean, I, I, I made a conscious decision to move into commercial women's fi fiction. I didn't even know it was commercial women's fiction. I was purging myself of 10 years of bad dates in the first novel called Not Many Mr. Right. Um, had no idea, I, 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 did, I wasn't thinking genre. I was thinking I wanna, I wanna write Aboriginal women in a contemporary setting, a sassy, educated, um, community-focused um, women who you know, go to the beach and go shopping and have cocktails and so forth. So I just was, you know, and plus doing dates from hell. So I was just writing this novel and then a review came out before it landed into the, the actual literary landscape, review in the Sydney Morning Herald by someone I, I hugely respect, saying that Anita Heiss has pioneered the genre of Corey Chicklet. And I thought, wow, I didn't even know that, there, you know, that I could do that. Interestingly, I don't think there's any other commercial... Aboriginal authors. Our authors are literary. Now, I don't have the vocab to be a literary writer. No, it's true. It's very true. Um, She's got only a vocabulary of 5,000 words. I know. Yeah, that's right. That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Just use them over and over every game. So, no, no, the average person has a vocab of about 10,000 words. But um, George Bush had 5,000, George W. Bush, and I have 5,000, but they're different words. And so... <laughs> and so... Um, yeah, so uh, interestingly, so I, I'm not going to lie to you, I like seeing my, not my novel in Kmart and Target and at the airport. Um, and the, but I don't see, there's no other commercial writers, they're, they're literary writers. So I think to myself, why hasn't somebody 
else just that moved into that space. We have over 5,000 published Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander authors in Australia. So, um, so why do you think? I don't know. Maybe because they also think that chick lit belongs at the bottom of the literary ladder and they don't want to be down there with me. I don't know. But I sit in dinner parties like my friends and on dinner parties we, we go out for pizza, whatever, um, with my friends who are writers um, of all persuasions and, and you know, at beautiful writers who care about winning awards and so forth and their print runs and they're, they're selling like 700 copies and it's not about the sales, it's about how much time do you want to spend writing something that so few people read and they angst over... You, Beautiful writing, beautiful, like angst over every word of every sentence. And okay, that's what you all should do, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but then I'm just going. And then they angst over not being shortlisted for a literary award. Um, at least I know that my, I, don't, I don't angst over it because I know that my commercial fiction doesn't get short, doesn't get put into literary awards. But I sell, you know, ten times the amount of books. And, by the, and then, I meet, then I know that people are reading those books. But I'm surprised that nobody has moved into that space because not from mob but from I've had reviewers say oh you know readers of Anita's more serious work or non-fiction work will be disappointed but they don't understand why I did it I wanted Australian women in book clubs talking about the issues that were important to me I wanted them talking about black deaths in custody and the NT intervention and human rights and social justice um, and the only way I could get them to consider those issues was to write books about relationships so I write books about relationships and astral travelling sex and shopping and cheesecake and Manhattan and Paris with, you know, with the pastel-coloured cover. Look, I didn't know any of that when I wrote, this, wrote my book, my first one. Yeah. Well, see, I didn't know how it worked. So my publisher my, of that, not meeting Mr Wright, that went on to do the rest, she was the buyer from Dimmix that I first had, right? And so she, we had a meeting one night and she said, oh, here's a draft of the cover. We sent... That she got the top 15 best-selling covers in the genre that year, sent those covers plus the synopsis of my book to a designer and said, this is what the story is about, this is what's selling, create something. And so that designer was used for the four books. And so Larissa said to me, women who read in this genre, who may never have heard of you before, most likely had never heard of me before, obviously probably never read a woman, book by an Aboriginal woman before, will go, don't know what they're looking for, but they'll go into the shop and they'll look for a, look for a book that looks, looks like the book they just read. So this was all fascinating to me, but she was a buyer. She goes, I need, this is what happens, and women come in and they're looking for... And then I was telling a friend of mine in Melbourne, she goes, oh my God, I've just looked at my bookcase, the entire bookcase is pastel colours and so forth. So all you want though, so someone who doesn't know Paula Morris or Anita Heiss, um, uh, all you need for them is to spot that book in the shop and pick it up and, once, and then the next important thing is the blurb on the back and you're halfway to a sale. But your covers that you showed us, the yep. woman in them, yep. got brown faces? They're brown, yep. Okay, so let me tell you the story. Having the brown faces is an issue in America. So the ghost of my first book, Ruined is Black, the ghost on the cover of the book is white. So we're back and forth with Scholastic about this. They're a wonderful publisher. They're really great to deal with. But there was a lot of pushback from sales and marketing. They didn't want to have a black girl on the cover because that would say it's for a black reader. And the majority of people they're selling to are white. So we finally came to a compromise where she became a, a sort of a beige person <laughs> with, with, with hair kind of my colour, not natural. And... Uh, she looked like my Italian Barbie that I bought in Australia in 1980. Anyway, 
Um, but I went to a, a conference with some sales reps in South Carolina, and they said, oh, we've had real pushback from some of the shops about the cover. I said, what? There's Italian Barbie on the cover. They said, she, she's too black. So she was just not even, she wasn't, she was as brown as I am. And that meant that some shops would not take it. So, I mean, this is, we're talking 2009. So when I saw your books with the brown faces, I'm like, wow, that's fantastic. Because you're not just selling to a brown audience, are you? And I was going to say, in that debate, that's still happening. Blackall is having the debate about having black characters, you know, in mainstream publishing and so forth, because you'll see that in social media. Yes, yeah, so no, I mean, it's, it's a draw card in Australia, because people are desperate, teachers in particular, are desperate for content. And so Mary Talents, both those covers had, well, one cover had my mum on it, the next cover had um, uh, the, a, a woman who'd passed away, but she was the mother of a boy who died in black deaths and was a black death in custody and, and was the reason that we had a royal commission into black deaths in custody. So I asked the family if I as a tribute to her, if we could use her, her cover. What, you, what, I, what I like to do when I'm lecturing back home is to put up covers, though, of covers by Aboriginal authors and then covers by um, non-Aboriginal people writing about Aboriginal people. And the distinct differences are the books by white fellas are covered in dots and X-ray art and our covers just look like a cover, you know, the covers reflect the story, right? And so it's really interesting what marketing teams will do and what some authors will, will allow to happen, but I will never have a dot on my cover. Well, where I come from, the, dot art is, is from the, you know, the Western Desert, the Punyatula movement, and um, it's... it's a, exploited for the purposes of making money in certain industries. But where I come from, we do um, emu eggs and, and possum skin cloaks and so forth. So it would be inappropriate unless I had a novel that was set somewhere where it was appropriate. I'd love a possum skin cloak. Bring one over. Okay. What's our next question? Um, She's in charge. What are the challenges and barriers for Indigenous publishing today? Challenges and barriers for Indigenous publishing today? Well, a lot of you are in this area, right? So we have Huia here, which is very important for getting Maori voices to the world. But we still have, um, a, and, and Pacific Island voices too. And of course, we are all artful and cunning as writers here as we have to be. So there are other ways of getting published. And Nani Wayne-Young talked about that, about selling her books through Amazon, reaching a, a, a bigger audience that way. Um, we have an issue here, okay, so just briefly, Pantograph Punch with their, one of their YOY articles, why aren't there more books by Maori people, so why? Is it that publishers are sitting there with stacks of manuscripts they're turning down? No. There needs to be mentoring, there needs to be nurturing of writers, so that's why Hui has its Te Papa Tupu scheme, and many of those writers are here this weekend. It's a big job to be done. You can't just say, oh, no Maori writers have turned up knocking at the door with their big manuscripts, so we're going to just throw up our hands. So we talk a lot in the literature sector here about what can be done at school level and then beyond school. In fact, it was a conversation Nadine and I were having today. How can we continue to support and nurture writers so they are coming through, knowing that many people are working at a disadvantage? Then, you know, not everyone in New Zealand, surprisingly enough, goes to a Dessau 10 school, even though we are a wealthy country, are we not? But lots of people are working at a disadvantage, not everybody, but some. So how can we keep supporting them through the system? So in a way, that is the challenge for our writers 
to keep nurturing them and making new voices possible. And then also for Māori writers to find places to to meet and converse. Nadine and I were discussing this online. It's not always a safe place, as we know, you know, to our peril. So how do we form networks and communities, writers' groups? How can we support each other to become better at writing, to, to work on our art and craft, and get to a point where we are writing a rich range of manuscripts? It is a challenge. Do you have... So we have in Australia... I, I think we're... We're a lot further ahead for a population that's much smaller in terms of an Indigenous population. So we have um, we have three Indigenous publishing houses, Magabala Books, which is, do beautiful children's books and fiction. I think some of the best, the the best children's books in the country. Uh, Rachel Binsella, so she was my my first editor back in '96, and uh, we have Aboriginal Studies Press, which is mainly um, non-fiction, and a lot of that is academic works by non-Indigenous people, but um, they have um, increasingly more um, cultural academic works. Um, we have IAD Press, which is attached to an institute in the Northern Territory. Uh, we also, but we have we have we have some good commitment from mainstream publishers. We have Hachette, which is you know, major publisher with a load of money, and they now sponsor, they're partnered with the State Library of Queensland, and we have a program called Black and Right, and there's two fellowships per year, and it's been going for a number of years. So, Hachette we have Black and Right, so two fellowships a year, and nearly all of those authors have gone on to write other books and won awards. So they get mentored, they get, they're edited by um, Aboriginal editors, they're based at the State Library of Queensland. Um, University of Queensland Press. So I'm trying to think about ways that universities can pick up things and don't have to reinvent the wheel, but like look at other templates. So in 1988, the University of Queensland set up um, a writing award for Aboriginal uh, unpublished authors uh, in the name of Davey Nippon to celebrate our first published author. So you get $10,000 and you get um, a contract. So they have built this amazing stable. I've got about 56 books in their list of the Black Australian Writers Series and they get probably two, book, two or three books a year out of that competition because everyone's sending them their manuscripts so they get to choose from... So I had a meeting with Aboriginal Studies Press years ago. They're going, why aren't we getting the big names? I said, because UQP have this great award. You need to set up an award and then to attract the manuscripts. Um, and they set up a non-fiction award, so uh, the Stanner Award, and they've got... So there's an award there as well. Um, but I thought it might be useful to ask the audience who, who's been trying to get a book published, who's sent their manuscript off recently or in la the last year, and what sort of barriers they've... Anybody had any issues? I just... No? We live in a golden land. Um, a couple of things, though. So, AU, uh, Auckland University Press is about to embark on an initiative of 100 books in Te Reo. And this came directly out of publishing a book in Te Reo, being a bit half-hearted about it, thinking it wouldn't sell, sold out. So then a few people roll into town say, let's do this, let's really do something. The second thing, Michael King Writers uh, residency, Michael King Writers Centre, who's uh, exhibiting here, looked at their residencies. Why weren't Maori writers coming to the Maori writers residencies? Well, partly it was because we were only offering them to established writers. Well, there aren't that many of us. So changed it to emerging writers and also made shorter residencies because a lot of us have got jobs and families and commitments and we needed that. The 
applications soared in number, lots of excellent quality ones. And I was just talking to, to Caroline Barron today because I'm no longer on the trust. And uh, she said it was really hard to choose because the emerging riders coming through are so strong. So that's good news. But it means that often, as you're saying, you and the institutions have to adapt to the reality of the environment. So HUIA has adapted by saying we need to have Te Papatupu mentoring, which is funded by the Māori Literature Trust. The Michael King Writers Centre says we have to have emerging writers' residencies to make it work for people. And I would encourage you all as writers, especially those of you Indigenous writers, to think, well, what do I really need? What would help me? And then who can help me? And maybe sometimes it's just giving useful feedback, not complaints and not moaning but saying, actually, you know, if you guys did this, it could really help me because we have to be then proactive in making our own careers possible. And I think, I mean, we did it in small ways at the university. This is a small thing and is kind of irrelevant, but, you know, what time do we offer our master's classes? We were offering them from three to five. Well, those of you who've got children know that's a terrible time especially for women. So you just move your class time, but often you just need to, people to raise their shoes or for you to think a little bit and start adapting. So I think here there's a lot of potential and possibility, but a lot of it is about joining the dots together, which is why we now are creating a literature sector group where all of us, publishers, booksellers, um, NZSA, Academy of New Zealand Literature, Auckland Writers Festival, we're all in the room talking to say, who's doing what, how can we leverage it, how can we make things better, how can we support our writers? The Māori Literature Trust is part of that too. I was just thinking also, and this is a long-standing issue and it's getting better, is that it's about nurturing our own reading audiences in our communities. So in Australia, we've been singing, dancing, painting, performing since the beginning of time. And people, and, and we invented AFL, it's called Mangrook, it's the Aboriginal, it was an Aboriginal game before it was called Australian football. And so we, you know, people are still quite happy to pay to go to the footy or to see a band and so forth, but there's still in many ways, in many places, a reluctance to spend $30 on a book. So we're still nurturing and, and go to book events. Having said that, I mean, I live in Brisbane. It's a very nurturing, supportive writing community generally. So, you know, at the Brisbane Writers' Festival, I could say, show me a show of hands, and there'll be a significant number of Aboriginal or local Murrays in the audience because on that Writers' Festival program also, which is across the country, many of our writers' festivals now, have quite a significant um, list of Aboriginal authors on the program. And before, the days gone by to be every session, we'd all be put together, right? And now we're talking about, I said, I want to talk about character development. I want to talk about, you know, children's literature, not just, you know, not just brown stuff, because the skills are transferable everywhere. So um, that that's changed. But I think we... I don't know what it's like here. I don't know if Maori people are book buyers or book readers, if they're members of libraries. We were saying the other day, you don't have to buy a book, just go to the library. Make sure your library's got all the books that you want to read and borrow them. So I think nurturing, nurturing a reading audience helps to grow, grow the community as well. Oh, and I was going to say, so we have an, we have an organisation called First Nations Australia's Writers Network, FANORN, and it has diff varying levels of success. It's only a few years old, but we just had a, a national Indigenous writers, First Nations Writers Forum in Canberra, and I'm, I don't know, maybe it was a couple of hundred people were at that. So there was, you know, publishers, editors, writers across genres, um, keynote addresses, Alexis Wright, I think, Skyped in from somewhere. I missed it because I was on country, but I'm, I, I saw it all unfold on social media and I know how much work was put into it. And I think 
spaces like this, um, it's, you know, it hadn't happened for, since 2012. So how many years is that? 2014. How many years is that? That's a lot of years. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, maths isn't my strong point. 5,000 words and no numeracy skills. And so, and the other issue is, you know, I come from a country where um, we have incredibly low literacy rates in, in, in many of our remote communities, although there are many stories to be told. So it's about for many of us, like I, I go on into communities for love jobs with the Indigenous Literacy Foundation and we write books with kids to help them nurture a love of reading. And these kids speak English as a second, third or fourth language. They're fluent in a number of languages, but um, they're, you know, only 35% of ki Aboriginal kids in remote communities are at or above the standard reading level. So there's also that issue that's always at the back of my mind for what we need to improve on to get our kids to be able to enjoy the books that you know you all, you all want to write. I've always said the great Australian novel will not be written if it leaves us out of the story, because we are in every part of the landscape. So you can't write the great Australian novel and not talk about First Nations people. Um, it's about context. It's about purpose. So we've had this conversation. Like, what, what is the purpose of you writing it with the Maori protagonist? Um, we have protocols in Australia for writing about Aboriginal people. They're downloadable. They would be useful for you to have a look anyway. Downloadable for free from the Australia Council for the Arts website, which is like your Creative New Zealand. If you just Google writing protocols, Terry Janke, T-E-R-R-I-J-A-N-K-E, the Australian Society of Authors, Creative New Zealand, my, uh, Australian New Zealand Society of Authors may have some... No? OK. So Australian Society of Authors have, um, have protocols written as well because increasingly people want to write um, and, and inc inclusive stories and diverse stories. Um, I get people send me questions all the time. They've sometimes finished their manuscript. I go, don't you... This is not something you put in at the end of your manuscript. This is in your planning and it's a part of your methodology and it's... And it's about how you go about researching. And I was saying in my, in my class before that when I pick up a novel or, or any book by a non-Aboriginal person that is about, uh, has Aboriginal content, the first thing I do is I go to the acknowledgements pages to see who they've spoken to, who they've researched with, who they've got um, uh, some sort of feedback from. So uh, one of the books that I would say is, is the, one of the great Australian novels, one the Miles Franklin is written called Journey to the Stone Country by Alex Miller. And I was 100 pages in, I'm going, he knew all this stuff, and I, and I, I couldn't find who it was that how he knew this stuff. And then I, I realised the people he dedicated the book to were the two people based on, and I met the I met these people and he'd lived with them for 20 years and, and you know, he, he wouldn't have published that book had they not okayed the manuscript and so forth. So it's a, it's a greater level of consultation, but it'll make it a better book. Whenever I'm on a, a panel or at a festival where we're talking about Indigenous literature, there's always this question, and it's often the first question, and it's how do I write Maori characters? Um, and, and I don't mean this disrespectfully to you. But I think the main co-papa of this session is for Indigenous writers, you know, and and I feel that's all right. See, Anita's nicer than me, and in Australia they have guidelines. <laughs> we don't. We're like, yeah, bugger off. Um, 
I just feel like it's the imaginative work of the writer. I'm not one of these people who thinks, no, you can only write about who you are. However, you as the writer needs to know what you're going to need to do to make a complex and three-dimensional book. And I don't think we can help you. You know, we can't help you, you know. Um, history of exploitation and appropriation and that's the problem there's a history of the, of that and so people are and I've been I mean I'm an advocate for free speech in many ways but I, I would say unless you, you can't write that voice unless you have lived that voice walk the walk sort of thing but um, I, I'm also I also in an Australian context I don't I don't want to keep seeing Australian novels come out as the great Australian novel and not even mention that we exist so I mean, it is, it is the burden on a New Zealand writer as well. Who are the New Zealand writer? If you're writing a realist novel set in contemporary New Zealand, then it's, you know, unless it's in Southland, you know, um, it's going to be a multicultural novel. That's what it's going to be. So it's your, it's your challenge as the writer to make it work. And if you can't, then you can't. Um, I think the difference now is that... It was, sometimes people in New Zealand say, I don't know if they say this in Australia, I get the feeling everyone in Australia is just being brash and riding around on horses, but, um, you know, feeling bold and audacious and making, putting an E on, making, you know, should we have a convo about this? But, um, you know, it's true. Let's change our name to Snowy. But often people will say to me, oh, in New Zealand you have to be so careful because you'll get criticised. You have to be really careful. And it's like, no, you just have to be a good writer. And also, if you're going to be a writer, you're going to be criticised, okay, first, right? And if you're being criticised because you didn't do a very good job with your character and you've made them really two-dimensional and stereotypical, then you deserve to be criticised. So, you know, what we can't do is be creeping around just writing stories about people we know. We have to be able to take the imaginative leap to make it, rather, as writers. But, you know, think, what, what do I need to do? And ever, do I have, we talked about this in the point of view class yesterday, for those of you who are there, what's my point of view on the world? What's my perspective? What baggage do I bring? What unconscious biases? What stereotypes do I have in my head? And until you can rattle those three, you're never going to be able to write something bold and original. There's been, and there's been, like back home, there's been quite a lot of controversy around non-Indigenous authors um, imposting themselves. There's one, Car uh, Leon Carmen wrote a book called, uh, imposting himself as a woman called Wanda Kormachi. There's lots of controversy around that and fallout from that. And I've done a lot of work with publishers and I've been published by most publishing houses in Australia. And it's very, it would be very rare today to find an Australian publisher who would publish a novel um, or even a non-fiction work by a non-Indigenous author that was had lots of Indigenous content, that they wouldn't do it unless they were absolutely sure that protocols had been followed and that the communities written about are conscious of what's been written about and have had some level of involvement. They, because, you know, it's interesting because when I interviewed Patricia Grace years ago, like 22 years ago, I felt like you guys were so much further ahead you were in terms of this sort of stuff. And I think maybe um, we've had so much drama back home that it's really put our publishers on notice. Yeah. Well, Lord Jones brought this up at Word Christchurch. Was it, were any of you there when he talked about this? Um, he raised the issue, he said, oh, this is coming out of the academy, meaning the university. You know, writers should be able to do whatever they like. You know, we are the, 
we are the great geniuses. And I think that's a particular position, right? And I don't entirely disagree with it. But then it means actually, you know, when he wrote Mr. Pips, we were talking about this this weekend, Selena Tusi-Talamash was there in the Dominion Post saying, this is weird. The way he's portrayed this young girl in this place, it feels external, it doesn't feel like her point of view. So she's going to call him on it. And I, I think that sometimes authors just feel like I'm the author, therefore you cannot criticise me because I've imagined everything and, and I'm really great and look at these prizes I've won. See, I'm driving Malcolm out from Creative New Zealand. I know. I know. Leave, Malcolm. You don't want to hear this. It's very, very difficult. <laughs> yeah, we've got some more money. Oh, too late. Um, but that's his, and, and he's very intolerant, I think, of this notion that there, are, that there are ethical responsibilities, that we live in a connected world with what you've talked about, about having responsibilities and just relationships. But, 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 it's, don't you think this was but, but, but? So this is a really Western notion of ah the the writer I have the writer I have the right to write. So in the West, in a Western value system says you have the rights of the individual. The individual has certain rights, and a traditional Aboriginal value system is you have a responsibility and a role to community. So there are two opposing different value systems, and most of our writers are conscious of our value system, although writing within a Western uh, system. So. I'm grateful for the boundaries. I, I actually am grateful. It, it, people go, oh, what a burden. I go, no, you know what, it makes it, makes it easier. In some ways, it makes it easier for me to write because I know that I have, I know what the boundaries are and I think as an Aboriginal person, if I have to follow those protocols, then sure as hell non-Aboriginal people have to follow them too. Yeah. I mean, this comes up, doesn't it, when we're writing about ancestors, tupuna, someone else's tupuna versus your own. We've had the same history of appropriation of of, you know, well, even like the Lindau and Goldie pictures where the person's stripped of their name and it's given a title or the moko is changed or just the clothes are changed. So the Maori guys turn up in suits at the studio, but they're painted with bare skin and a, and a cloak, you know. Um, I think that's all very vivid and recent and we have to fumble our way through it. New Zealand Society of Authors, Tipune Kaituhi o Aotearoa, Pen NZ Incorporated, is the principal organisation representing writers in New Zealand. We want to continue to provide opportunities for you to grow in your professional development. That's why we've started NZSA Web Workshops. Visit our website, authors.org.nz, to find out about these opportunities. Experienced writers and teachers will lead them. We hope that they help you to grow as a writer and face whatever tomorrow brings. Our website again is authors.org.nz. 